We started the book of Romans a number of weeks ago, and uh, in my very first sermon on this book titled Saving Saul, which is all there on YouTube if you want to find them or on our website, um, you can go back if you're just uh, showing up here at the church. There's, there's a little bit of this journey that you've missed, but you can catch up. Um, I introduced this book with this theme, Unashamed of the Gospel. That is the theme I believe that carries through the entire book. And, uh, but I wanted to break it up a little bit into four parts here and, and, and so that we could kind of move section by section through and, and see how Paul moves his argument or his presentation of this spectacular gospel piece by piece. And so we've covered Romans 1 through 5 already. I titled that Revealing God's Righteousness. And we've spent most of our time in there considering uh, the justification of God, uh, uh, the, 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 the work that he accomplishes in saving sinners. This is God's work, right? We are completely unable, unwilling, undeserving, and yet God saves powerfully so. Today we begin a transition into the second uh, portion of this book that I've titled The Triumph of God's Grace, and it moves us into uh, into the area of sanctification. If we were in systematic theology, that's, that's, the, that's what this class would be starting as. This is Sanctification 101, Romans chapter 6. We're going to be looking after we finish that. We'll probably take a pause and do a, a minor profit uh, in January sometime. And then we're going to be looking at Romans 9 through 11, God's sovereign salvation. Again, remembering that this entire book is a, a build-out, an opening up of the glories of the gospel. How sure can you be that you are His eternally? That's going to be answered resoundingly in Romans 9-11 through 11 as we dig into those. Uh, it's really the deep end of the pool theologically. Wonderfully glorious stuff in there. And then the application of these things in the final chapters. This is what Paul will often do. He'll lay a foundation of theology to build the house of application on. And that is how we finish then the book of Romans. If all of this is true and he has accomplished all of this and is at work, then what should we do? What should we do? How should we respond? Now, I don't want to make these sections so separate that you think that it's just a, a hard you know, stop on the previous one because really justification flows um, tremendously into sanctification. They're almost inseparable as far as our, um, our, our, our walking day by day. Understanding justification is what gives us the strength to live in sanctification. And um, application flows out of that. So that's a little bit of where we're going. What I want to do is set the stage um, for Romans 6 through 8 by giving kind of a, an overview of some important truths, and then we're going to begin to see these unfold in the next number of weeks as we move through these three chapters. The triumph of God's grace. First of all, I want to make clear that the Christian experience is largely consisting of these three categories. Justification is monergistic. It is the work of God only. He is the only worker. He saves. He saves. And that has been our experience by the grace of God, right? Through faith that he gives to receive this amazing gift, we are saved powerfully. And then immediately in that moment, we begin this work of sanctification. And we're going to really un un unpack this in the coming chapters. And then 
basically upon our death or upon the return of Christ, glorification. Not before then. Not, it, it doesn't happen before that, but it will happen. And it is the experience right now of some of those that we have had that have gone to be with the Lord. They are glorified with Him. And someday their bodies that we have laid to rest in the ground will be raised and their souls reunited, glorified body, equipped for forever uh, to live on a new earth. And so that is a lot of what is to come. Um, but primarily we're operating in the first two of the experience of, of the gospel here for the Christian life. When we are saved, it is important to see this, the, the, the classic three Ps of, of the preacher, right? We are saved and delivered from the penalty of sin. That has taken place in full on the cross when Jesus finished his work and he said, it is finished. It means that every single sin you have ever committed or will ever commit has been paid. The wrath for that sin is satisfied. The punishment for that sin in the death of Christ has been completed. It is done. He died and was buried. And the reason we know this is true is because of the resurrection. It's as if God gives his stamp of approval. I agree. And three days later, Jesus is raised powerfully from the grave. So the penalty of sin is paid. And we've, we've, we've talked about this in the previous weeks. Christian, you know this. You face no wrath from your Father in heaven. He who used to only be your judge is now your Father who loves and delights in you. When He sees you, He sees you righteous in the righteousness of Christ. But the second reality is that we have been released from the power of sin. We have been. that The power of sin in our lives has been broken and shattered. So once we were able only to sin before Christ. Now we are able not to sin. We have the ability to choose to obey. This is something before we were saved that we did not have. We were slaves. We were under the slave master of sin. It's kind of hard to, to fathom this. Before you were saved, there was nothing that you did that was not sinful in some way or another. I remember the first time I heard that. I was like, no, come on, really? No, but for real, it's there. It's in the text, as we've seen. We are totally depraved, unable not to sin. That is, that is something that we, we do naturally, instinctually, and that we delight in left to ourselves god has released us from that power now the other reality of this is that we have the holy spirit in us we have been given the spirit of christ we have the holy spirit in us he dwells in us and we have the word of god open before us these are powerful things christian let's be clear you are not who you were any longer your new creation, a new creation. Someday, we will be set free from the presence of sin entirely. Now, that will be the glorification experience. Either at death, when we meet face to face with Christ instantly, 
or upon the return of Christ when we're brought into his presence to be with him forever. Someday, we will be released from the presence. Just imagine a world where there is no more sin. Just imagine what a day would be like to live without any sin or possibility of sin in your life. Wow, it's coming. It's coming someday. There are in your Bible indicatives and there are imperatives. The New Testament is filled with them. The indicatives explain what Christ has done to save you, to bring you to life. This is his work. This is the work of God. This is what he has done, describing the gospel. The imperatives are commands. This is in response to what he has done. We are then called to obey. We are called to put it to work. We are called to live out our salvation. Indicatives and imperatives. Now, there are people that would say, no, pastor, I I think there's just only indicatives. There's not imperatives. And I would just love to see a Bible that would be left after all the imperatives were cut out. there, There would be so little left of the Bible you carry. If you tried to go through just the New Testament alone and, and say, well, that's a command, cut that out. Cut, 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 cut. I mean, you would have very little left. The Bible is filled with commands, but let's be clear. Those commands are not to be obeyed so that you can be saved. That's a work salvation. We've made clear already. That is not how we are saved. The commands are there to be obeyed because you're saved. You are enabled to obey by grace each step of the way. And these are good commands. God is the best Father. He gives the best way to live. His way is best always. And so His commands are for us, not against us. He's not a killjoy. He knows what's most satisfying in this life. He knows the best way to live, and He calls us to that. The world will take that and say, oh, God's just trying to ruin your day. He's trying to steal your fun. Worldliness is anything that makes godliness, godliness look strange. Worldliness is anything that makes godliness look strange and um, sin look good. I think I butchered that quote by Kevin DeYoung, but it's something like that. You get my point. How often we hear in our day, Oh, no, that's love. No, that's love. That's not love. That's sin. When you see a definition given to something that's clearly sinful and it's called good, you have found worldliness. When holiness and godliness and obedience to God is shaped and framed and, 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 and written off as boring or lame, well, you've found worldliness. The Christian is to stand out, to shine in the dark. This is our call because of the gospel. Listen, here's an example of of the, uh, the imperatives meeting the indicatives. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's before you were saved. But as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, and this is really cool how this happens. He's quoting Leviticus 19 and and 20. This is where we were just before Romans. You see how this comes together? You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
where once all we had was a command that we could not in and of ourselves obey, now, through the gospel, we have been given the power to obey the command. Be holy as I am holy. Strive for the holiness apart from which no one will see the Lord. This is the call for the Christian life. Progressive sanctification is the theological term for this. There are churches that have completely uh, thrown this aside and they are dead wrong to do so. It is just so richly biblical. And it is the vocation of the Christian life. It is what we do day after day. This is how we are called forward in the Christian life. It is a firm belief that the gospel that saves also sanctifies. And Christian, this is so good for us. Sometimes in our testimonies, and, and I understand that the dynamic, when we share our testimonies, we talk a lot about conversion. But friends, that's day one. That's day one of the process of being a Christian. He saved us and He is making us holy. He is making us holy. And this is a Spirit-empowered, grace-enabled, faith-filled experience every day. You are saved by grace and you are sanctified by grace. You are called to obey in the power of God's Spirit and by His grace. So, no, it's not an escalator. No, you don't, you don't lay down on the escalator of sanctification and just hope to turn out at the top and you do nothing. You just ride it to the top. That is not what the Bible says. You are called to obey. You are called to action. You are called to work and labor and hunt and kill sin in your life. But you're called to do so from the gospel power that you have been given inside, drawing upon the Spirit who dwells in you. We need more of this in American churches. More of this. Your position is righteous in Christ. You stand positionally justified, declared righteous. God has pounded the gavel and he has looked at you, Christian, and he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus, and he says, you are righteous. Done. But are you today as you walk through the day? Simul ustus et peccator, at once or at the same time righteous and sinner. That's the reality of the Christian life. I am righteous in Christ. Positionally, I'm a saint. I am a saint in the eyes of the Father. But I am being made righteous progressively day by day. Both of these are true. They're both true. Well, Pastor, how can I be righteous and becoming righteous at the same time? The answer is, you are called to become who you already are in Christ. That is what sanctification is. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones says it. Our greatest need as believers, as Christians, the world over, is to become who we already are in Christ. It is realizing who we are at our deepest level. You are not 
any longer the person you were. And yet there are these, these instincts, this, this old man, as Paul describes, that wants to crawl up out of the grave and grab your ankle and drag you back into these old patterns. And we're called to say, no, stay down, old man. Stay in the grave. I pull loose of that. I am running after Jesus today. I want to obey him. I want to please him with my life. I want to, to, to shine in the light of righteousness. And so my sermon title, Become Who You Already Are. This is going to be a theme that's going to track over the next couple weeks in Romans 6. Uh, but I just want to cover four of these verses today because they're so rich and they, they have so many implications for our lives. So Romans 6, verses 1 through 4, I titled the first two verses, Be True to Yourself. Now, please don't leave, okay? I know this sounds a bit like a Joel Osteen sermon here now. Be true to yourself. Come with me, okay? You'll, you'll see what I'm saying. Be true to your, the self that you are in Christ is what I'm saying. Verses 1 and 2, we'll start with verse 1. Paul says, what shall we say then? You see what he's doing again? He's asking the question that the objector, the, the, the one who is kind of coming at Paul, has asked countless times over the 20 plus years of Paul's ministry. In all these synagogues, all these people that he's preached with, they come at him with these questions. Well, Paul's just like, here's the deal. I'm going to write this letter and I'm going to anticipate the questions I've heard countless times. I'm just going to write them in at the points where I know they're going to be asked. So as you're reading this letter, Romans, I know there's three or four guys in the back row like, hey, I got a question. Paul's like, I know you do. I'll ask it for you. Okay, here it comes. This is the, this is the objection to the justification of, by grace, through faith, apart from works of righteousness. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see what they're saying. You gotta, you gotta feel this objection. Obviously, they're not saying that everybody should just sin like crazy. They're saying your gospel is wrong. That can't be the gospel. You didn't get it right, Paul. You can't be saying what you're saying. If you want people to live in obedience and righteousness. We'll go back to Romans 3. Remember this objection? Hey, Paul, these are my own paraphrase of it if my sin makes god look good why would he be angry when i sin that was in romans 3 or say it this way if salvation is all of god and where sin abounds grace abounds all the more shouldn't we sin it up and make god look awesome there have actually been people that have believed that throughout history or this one if salvation is all of grace, then we can live for hell and still get heaven. Now, let's be careful with this. Um, there are people in our county that live this way. They might, they might not say, well, that's what I believe, but their life does. This is how they're living. And the way you live is the litmus test for what you say you believe. If salvation is truly all of grace and, and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, it doesn't then matter how I live, does it? I can just live for hell 
And as long as I said the prayer, he has to give me heaven. Or, I said the sinner's prayer when I was young, and I'll get serious about Jesus once I've had my fun. But I got some fun to have first. I got some memories to make. I got some parties to hit before I really go and get serious about obeying Christ. God, I think, is mainly focused on conversion. He doesn't care what we do after that. Man, you talk about, oh, so many, so many people are going to come to the presence of God and hear these words, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. So listen close, Christians. For all who are here today, listen close. We're not playing games when we talk about the gospel. This is not just a gospel about someday or about what happened way back then. It's today. And if he returns today, where are you? Where are you? Some say, well, I'll take Christ as Savior, but I still want to be the Lord of my life. <laughs> Is that an offer that he makes anywhere? Do you ever find any page on Scripture where that offer is made? Listen, I'm happy to be your Savior. You run your life for a while, though, and, 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 and I'm good with that. Do you remember moving through the Gospel of Luke how often Jesus said, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Leave everything like Matthew the tax collector. Drop it all. Leave those nets and come after me. To what? To follow me. To obey my commands. To trust me. To let me lead you on. You cannot take Christ as Savior and refuse Him as Lord. That is not the Gospel. And yet, today there are people who live as if it is. So we have to be aware of this dynamic, this inclination. This is not new. There are all kinds of ways to try to reach in and justify sin. Let me just point you to one text alone to just show us from Jesus' own mouth what he sees in this. The Great Commission is a great example of this. He says to the apostles, go and make what? Disciples. He didn't say go and make converts. That's a part of it, but that's not all. He says go and make disciples, followers of all the nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them. Go and be teaching them to what? To observe. Is that like, oh, look, there's some commands over there. I see them, but it doesn't matter. No, observe means obey. Teach these followers of Christ to do everything I have commanded. That is imperative language. Obey the king. That's what the kingdom looks like. You can't say I'm part of the king's kingdom if you care nothing about the laws of the kingdom, the commandments of the king. John would say, you don't love the king if you don't obey the king. Hmm. Justifying sin. Oh, friends, this is, this is something that we do far more than we realize. To justify sin. 
I find this in my own heart welling up. A battle. Catch it. Don't allow that to take place. Don't justify your sin. Well, but he did. Or they said, I'm just the victim. Oh boy, that's a big one in our day. Right? Here's, this is the weirdest thing. If you can write yourself as the victim, you can justify anything. I, I have seen it. I have, I have watched this play out. Hey, I'm the victim. Don't forget, I'm the victim. I can do anything I want. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And it works. It works really well in our day. We are the victim of others' sins, absolutely, without a doubt. We have all been sinned against. And you will not answer for the sins that have been committed against you. The perpetrators of those sins will answer for those sins. But you will answer for your response. How you have responded. Every time you've justified your sin because of the sin against you, you will answer for. The Christian is called to not just play the victim card their entire life. We are called to be a people of the gospel, grace and forgiveness and love and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. What about this? Presuming upon God's grace. Well, here's the thing. I, I know God loves to forgive. And I love to sin. So, it's a great match. I'll just commit the sin and then I'll run to Him and ask forgiveness. What's wrong with that scenario? Read Hebrews 6 and tell me what you think. How do you know you're still going to repent after you commit that sin? How, how do you know your heart is not going to become so hardened in your rebellion, in literally disobeying the king of the universe, that you are going to repent once you've sinned? You don't know that. That's what Hebrews 6 calls us, to be on our guard again. Presuming upon God's grace is toxic to the Christian. Please don't ever justify your sin with a plan to confess it. God loves His children, but He also disciplines His children. And His discipline can be very serious. We cheapen God's grace at times. We cheapen it. Well, I know there's, there's a sin in my life and, and, and it's there, but you know what? God loves to forgive and, and I'm just, I, I got too much else going on. I'm just not going to deal with it right now. I'm just going to allow it to kind of live. I know that that room needs to be addressed, but I'm keeping that door closed because I just, you know, I'm just too busy. You know, I got things going on and just want to leave that door closed. Or we, we, we coddle sin. You know, I just really, I'll give him all of this. Lord, I'll give you 90% of the house that you can be Lord over, but, but these rooms here, these are mine. This is my hobby. I like this idol. Sin, 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 sin. I choose it. I love it. I make room for it. I excuse it. I cheapen grace. I cheapen grace. Do you hear the pounding of the nails in the hands of the Savior when you sin? 
Do you hear His cries from the cross when you sin? Christians feel the weight of offense for sin. We don't just skip through it like it's no big deal. He died to release you from your sin. It's a big deal. Get yourself in the mirror and preach that sermon to your soul. Pray, oh God, make my heart grieve as much as your heart grieves when I sin against you. Demeaning God's grace. This is all dangerously possible to do as a believer in Christ. It's also dangerously easy to do as someone who claims to be saved but shows no fruit of salvation. No change. No love for obedience. No joy to turn from sin and trust Christ in obedience. What did Paul say in response to this, this accusation? Well, here's what he didn't do. Here's what he didn't do. He did not uh, change up the gospel. He didn't go back and be like, oh guys, I'm sorry, I, I must have said it wrong because you've drawn this conclusion. Clearly, I need to go and adjust the gospel. I know I said that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, but, but you, know, you still have to be a good person to be saved. That's not what he does at all. Now, the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But still, you know, guys, you've got to be serious about doing things in order to be saved. He did not say, in the slightest, let me rephrase the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God gives salvation to undeserving sinners as a gift of love and grace. He also didn't say this. Hey, haters going to hate. Sinners going to sin. Just let go and let God. Right? These, these, are, these are responses that you hear in our day. We need to adjust the gospel. No, no, no. We need to not adjust the gospel. In fact, we need to do just the opposite. We need to argue so strongly that salvation is apart from works that we swing way past the gospel and over here and say, there's no command you ever have to worry about. You just trust Jesus and it's all going to wash out. It's going to be just fine. Sinner's going to sin. Hey, if you love your sin, just trust God. He's going to change that for you. You don't have to do anything, though. Just keep walking in the dark. That is not biblical. It is not at all biblical. License is how you get, you get a, got a license to sin. It's not what Paul's saying either. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May genoito. Here it is. This is the strong one. The biggest, I think, in all of the Romans. This is the strongest language he can find. May genoito. May it never be. By no means. And then he says this. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin, still live in it? It's a rhetorical question. He's not looking for an answer to this. Oh, I, I know, Paul. I got it. No, this is a statement that he's saying to believers. Listen, Christian, you have died to sin. You who have died to sin, you can't go on living in it. 
You're missing the whole point. You died to that. Don't make your home there. Don't, don't pour the foundation of your life in Christ in the dark. It's not who you are. Libertarianism. I have a license to sin. Perfectionism. Here's another distortion of the gospel. I, I haven't sinned in years. <laughs> there, there was a guy in my dad's church growing up that said that. He said, I, I haven't sinned in years. I like many years. He believed, as the Wesleyan tradition believes, that there is a state of perfection that you can arrive at. I wholeheartedly disagree. That's not what Paul's teaching here. You, you aim for holiness. You aim to obey in all things. The bar of holiness is the perfection of God. And at the same time, you understand that the closer you walk to the light of His holiness, the, the more He reveals of your desperate need for repentance and faith. I've asked older saints in the Lord, who have walked with Christ for many, many years. Do you see your sin more clearly now or earlier in your walk with God? And to a man, to a woman, they always say more now than ever. You see what I'm saying here? The, the idea that you're going to be perfect or sinless in this life, dispense with that. You will be battling sin from inside the world of flesh and the devil till your dying day, Christian. But you can obey. You can obey. Will you obey perfectly? No, you won't. That's not what Paul's suggesting here. Are you going to live in sin? Absolutely not. That's not what Christians do. Do Christians sin? Yes, they do. And they call it what it is and they catch it, and they grieve over it, and they repent of it, and they say, oh Lord, help me to obey. I don't want sin. I want life and light and joy. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see the, the feel, the sound of your life on Monday morning? That's your purpose statement, Christian. He loved me. He died and bled so that I could live this life right here, right now. My life is not my own. My love is no longer sin. I am a new creation. The deepest thing about me, my truest identity is righteousness now, not sin. Be who you are. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't go back to what you were living in before you were saved. Be who you are today in Christ. God is light and in him there is no, there is no darkness at all. Listen to what John would say. If we, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. We lie. And we do not practice the truth. Friends, one of the reasons the church gets a bad reputation is because of that. I'll be clear. That, there are Christians who sin and who call it that 
and who chase it down and do everything they can to repent and, and reconcile and make things right. But there are others who say they're Christians who sin and embrace sin and walk in the dark and they may stay in church for years and the carnage of that false claim is real. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Oh, I remember studying these verses deeply in Bible school. Man, what a call that is. No one who is born again of God, justified, makes a practice of. That's consistent with what Paul's saying here. Lives in. This is a settled, I am at home at peace with sin. I make room for it. I delight in it. I love it. I accommodate it. I protect it. You stay away, Jesus. Don't, don't you come near, light. This is my darkness. No saved person settles himself or herself in the dark and stays there. I'll tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit will bring such wonderful, beautiful guilt and weigh upon your conscience and say to you, what are you wallowing in the dark for? You are a light and you are light. Come back, repent and turn and run to Jesus where there is grace upon grace upon grace. Before Christ, we were at peace with sin and at war with God. A radical change has taken place in your life, Christian. Now you are no longer who you were. You are in Christ. You have a whole new identity. You are now at peace with God, as we learned in chapter 5, which means by default, you are at war with sin. Your sin. Are you at war with sin in your life? Are you an enemy of sin in you, hunting it, killing it in the power of the gospel? That is your vocation in sanctification. That, that, is, that is the work of obedience and discipleship. Not for salvation, but from salvation that we're called to. In what way have we died to sin? We're going to move quickly through these. I want to point the connection here that Paul makes. How, Paul, have we died to sin? Because he builds everything on that. You died to sin. You can't live in it any longer. United with Christ in his death. Verse 3. We're united with Christ in death. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So Paul draws on this, this analogy here, this, this illustration of baptism, and many of you have seen us um, do Christian believer baptism up here. The person comes and they, they get into the tank and they, they share their testimony. They're saved. God has saved them from their sins. That is first and foremost. That's what comes before baptism. He saved me. And then they turn, and what are they staring at? As they, they're staring at the cross of Jesus Christ. I am trusting Him. I, I identify with Him. I am with Him. When He died, I died. And they are laid back down under the water. I was buried with Him. And they are raised up, and I was raised with Him. This union with Christ it's the most significant thing in your life, Christian. 
When Jesus died for sin, we died with him to sin. Do you see, see the connection? That's what Paul's saying. Your death to sin happened when he died on the cross. You died to sin. It's an amazing thing. It's almost as if we were transferred. Someone asked me earlier this week, how does the death of someone 2,000 years ago relate to me today? This is exactly a part of that answer. It's as if we are transported back 2,000 years to be there with Christ and to be with Him in His death. I died. I died to what? I died to sin in Him. D.A. Carson puts it this way, the Christian has been put into a decisively new relationship to sin. We have been transferred from the realm of Adam to the realm of Christ. Sin is no longer a slave master. We died to it. It's buried like, like Christian in the, uh, the Pilgrim's Progress. That, that weight, that burden, it's in the grave. Gone. We have a radically new identity. We're called to be who we are now. It's no longer who we, who we are. We, that's who we were, but no more. So be who you are already. We were raised as well, verse 4, raised to walk in life with Christ. One of the beautiful uh, realities of the resurrection is what it signifies for us, not just in victory, for Christ, but in victory for us, in life. Jesus was raised to life, to live. And so are we. That's part of the gospel. He didn't just pay for all of the things that we have done wrong. He secured for us a way of life to live. Verse 4, we were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now that, that word newness there, that, that carries this quality. It's a character of life. It's a, it's a way of life, the kind of life that we live. It's not living in death. It's life in the living. I was just struck by this. I, I thought about the paralytic, okay? So, Jesus is there, and, and, and he says to the man, take up your bed and walk. Okay, Now, put yourself in that moment. There he is, and he's, he's never walked, and his legs have just shriveled, and all of a sudden, bam, new legs, strong and strengthened, muscles ready to go. And he stands up, and everybody's watching, and he's, he's like dancing around. Look at this. You know, I can, I can dance. He's jumping. And then he's like, oh yeah, take up the bed. That was part of the command. Okay, he takes up his bed. He's like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I can walk. Now, imagine at this moment, if he did this with his bed. Oh. Oh. And he crawled off. Everybody would be like, dude, what are you doing? Why are you crawling? What would he say? Well, it's who I am. I'm a paralytic. And Jesus would say, no. Not any longer. You are called to walk. 
in newness of life. You don't have to crawl anymore, friends. You're in the mud crawling around without strength. Now you have legs, strong legs. You can run. Walk it out. That's the call of the Christian life. Don't revert back to what you knew before. Those old instincts have to die. Put it away. You wake up in the morning, tempted to crawl across the room. No, stand up. Stand up and walk in newness of life. We've been reborn for righteousness. Listen to Ephesians 2.10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've been created. Look at that. Not, not remodeled. Okay, Created in Christ Jesus for... For, that's the purpose. That's the goal. That's the reason. His creation of you in Christ is so that you would walk out in good works the things that He, by the way, prepared beforehand for you to walk in. He's got plans for your life. And those plans involve your obedience, your embracing of His best, your delight in the light, not in the dark. One of the things that sin prevents is it prevents you from running the race and taking your place at the front line in the kingdom work. Why? Because you're guilt-laden and you're carrying around all this guilt because you've been living in the dark. No, come out from the dark and run and join us here and run the race without any sin. That's not what I'm saying. When you see the sin, call it what it is. Confess it, repent of it, turn and keep running the race. That is the victorious Christian life. Paul says this, Ephesians 4, they have become callous and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy to, every pra to practice every kind of impurity. But Christians, good shepherd, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about Him and were taught in Him, he, he clarifies, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. Here's the imperatives. That that's the old self. Put that off. Leave it with Christ at the cross and the grave. Leave that buried and gone and dead. It belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. Oh, beautiful word. This is our call, believers, today and this week. We've been set free from sin and set free to walk in righteousness. Kevin DeYoung said it this way, the most those most passionate about the gospel of God's free grace should be the most passionate about the pursuit of godliness. Just because His grace is free doesn't mean we say, let's sin it up. The whole point is, because His grace is free, I want to obey. I want to love Him with my whole heart and run the race with Him. Our response this morning, your identity in Christ your identity is in Christ and your walk is to be in the newness of life.
Remember this, Christian. That's, that's the reality. You have a new identity. The deepest thing about you is no longer sin. People say, well, the, I'm just trying to be true to myself. This is just who I am. No truer words could be spoken than by a Christian who says that in this context. Be true to yourself, the self that you are positionally in Christ. Live from that place and walk in newness of life. And just close with this question, where in your life do you need to declare war this week? What room have you had the door closed on in the house of your life? And you've been kind of protecting it. Lord, I, I, I'll give you all these other rooms, but this room, this is mine. I'm holding this one back. I, I, don't, I don't want you to see in here. Friends, open the door wide open. Let in the light of freedom and forgiveness and joy and satisfaction. You will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for being a God who delights to forgive as we come to You in repentance and faith. Even now, Lord, I'm reminded of my own just hatred of sin. I just, I, I'm so annoyed with my sin and, and my propensity to sin and those things that are in me that still seek to crawl out of the grave every day. I delight in Your love and Your 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 steadfast faithfulness to love me and, and to point me again to the cross. Call it what it is. Confess it. Run to Him and enjoy the forgiveness of His grace. And Father, we pray for Your help as a church to be a people committed to the Gospel. Not only to save us, but to sanctify us. To make us holy. Please, O oh God, in Your love and Your grace, work powerfully in us even now this week refine us call us out from the dark where we've been hiding if there's any areas of our lives that need to be addressed by the light of your purity and truth and radiance then help us to fling wide the door and invite you in to do the work of repentance and faith to be holy as you are holy is our passion O oh god work in us this week we pray in Jesus' name, amen.